everyone, this is Hazel Finlay and for this episode I speak with Arno Ilner. This episode was recorded in November or December of 2019, so if you find it weird that we're not talking about anything that's going on right now, it's because we recorded this podcast before uh, the, the world changed drastically, so um, yeah. Um, so Arno Ilner, uh, he's, uh, <laughs> he's a mental training coach among other things. Um, and he has a company called the Rock Warriors Way, um, that, that, that teach others mental training. Um, Arno's been a massive inspiration and mentor for me in my own work and my own climbing. I first heard his name probably in 2008 when I was studying Western philosophy at Bristol University and I was doing a lot of philosophy of mind and some psychology modules and I was also just very interested in psychology in general and and my own psychology as a climber but I'd never really involved myself or engaged in mental training so I'd never done anything or reflected on my own psychology or trained the mind in any kind of way and I hadn't even really considered that I could do that until I read his book so reading his book was a real perception shift for me Uh, it was kind of like a it opened my eyes and made me realize that it was possible to train the mind in the same way we can train our fingers and our forearms um, and that book was called The Rock Warrior's Way. Um, he's written another book since then. The Rock Warrior's Way is pretty philosophical, and so is this conversation. Um, but if you're not of that mind and you, you don't want to go that deep, then I, I suggest his other book as well, Espresso Lessons, which is, is a bit more of a practical approach to mental training. There's very ex- various exercises in that, so I'd recommend that. Um, and then I, at some point when I wanted to start my mental training business, I sent him an email and asked him various questions and he was only helpful. And, and actually we ended up climbing together in the Southeast of the U S, uh, for a month or so, three, three weeks, something like that. And it was just a wonderful experience climbing with Arno, um, I, I don't actually know how old he is and I, I don't want, I want to speak to his age, but he, he's still climbing really well. And he, he really demonstrated that his, his mental training, you know, he, he walked the walk, you know? Um, and I, I remember driving between these crags long distances as you do in the States and, and having just the best conversations with him about mental training. And I thought that it would be great to share that with lots of people so Arno was one of the the first person first people I thought of to get on the podcast and uh, not sure why uh, it didn't get it out there I didn't release it earlier I think just lots of other things popped up lots of other great conversations so but we're here now we're releasing it now and we do focus almost entirely on mental training we start off by talking about his own personal story of how he how he became a mental training coach 
uh, teacher. Um, but I'll just reel off some topics to get you you interested. So uh, we talk about fear of failure, fear of falling. We talk about kind of inner world. So thinking about awareness, thoughts, attention, emotions. Uh, talk about mindfulness. We talk about what it means to follow your passion, what it means to focus on the process and not the goal, goal seeking and outcome orientation. Uh, we talk about positive psychology, we talk about connection, we talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, motivation, sorry I already said that, imposter syndrome, uh, we touch on politics a little bit, might interest some of you, uh, achievement versus learning mental training beyond climbing so thinking about mental training as um, a way to strengthen the mind to benefit the whole well-being of an individual versus just thinking about mental training as a way to improve your climbing experience um, and then talk about a bit about trauma and, and some of the other work he's doing outside of the climbing world so it was wonderful to talk to Arno and I, I can imagine us doing a repeat conversation um, and yeah, it is a long podcast so um, if you're not interested in mental training you might not be into it but I might try it out because if mental training isn't something you've thought a lot about previously I think this could be a conversation to get you interested. So uh, with that enjoy the podcast and a special thanks to Arno for being such a, a wonderful uh, person in our climbing community. Okay, here we are. Arno, welcome to my van. <laughs> yeah, in Yosemite Valley, how about that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had no idea I was going to show up here in November. Really? This is a totally out of the blue trip for you yes okay. it, well kind of out of the blue it was um, tentatively planned but um, um, I don't know it just uh, came came together in the last minute okay so. and you said uh, in Yosemite Valley in, in November like you wouldn't normally be here in November well it's been I don't know it's been 10 years or so since I've been here so oh. uh, coming to the valley is hasn't been like a regular annual kind of thing mm -hmm. for me so whether it's november or october or september i'm not <laughs> uh i usually end up coming here just whenever the opportunity arises so. yeah and do you have much of a history of the valley in your youth did you climb here a lot or Maybe eight or ten trips, you know, over the okay. years, you know, climbing some of the, the classic routes, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, definitely not uh, staying here for months on a time, hanging out at Camp 4. Okay, that wasn't part of your <laughs> no. resume. Okay, but what, what was your resume like, you know, when did you start climbing? I started in 1973. Right, okay. <laughs> Was that before you were born? <laughs> uh, by quite a few years, yeah. Okay. <laughs> by uh, 14 years. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, in Tennessee, just uh, on some local crags, when introduced to climbing by some 
couple of friends in high school. So okay. it was a new direction, which uh, I welcomed one actually. <laughs> okay. So because you you weren't getting on very well with high school off before or? well being a senior in high school you know wondering where I'm going to going to go to college what am I going to study all of those were really unknown mm-hmm. and at the time I thought I was going to study music because my parents are European and so my mother in particular has a classical background so emphasized that we should be in the band and play instruments and enjoy music and appreciate it so I uh, thought that that would be the uh, the career, but was introduced to climbing and that changed everything. Right. Okay. So, do you do you remember like your first day on the rock? I do. <laughs> how how was it? Uh, it it was like uh, I think a lot of people experience when climbing just really resonates with them. They they can't really put their finger on why they like it. It's just uh, something that r- resonates and gels with their personality and and what they enjoy, you know. So when I reflect back on it, I, I really like the movement, uh, being outside, um, doing something physically challenging, and also like climbing movement. I, I like feeling my body move uh, on a rock. So. Mm-hmm. Cool. <laughs> and, and, then, and then what happened from there? Give me a little snapshot oh, of your, uh, your good life. Quick snapshot. Uh, yeah. One of the fellows that introduced me to climbing was a fellow named Steve. And I ended up following him to the same university, into the same field of study, which is geology, into climbing, of course, and also into ROTC, which is a, a officer, reserve officer training corps, you know, for becoming an officer to go into military after college. So okay. So I followed him into all of those right. areas, you know, simply because I didn't know what else to do. Okay. But it also was interesting to me, and especially climbing was pas- passionate for me. Hmm. <laughs> cool. And then so you were in the Army, and then... I was in the Army for a couple of years. I'd never intended to make it a career. I got out and and worked in the Wyoming oil fields as a geologist. That's what I studied, you know, so it seemed like the next logical step. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the oil industry is typically known for boom and bust, you know, so I got in on a boom and then it busted and lost my job. Right, okay. <laughs> and ended up moving back to Tennessee where my family's from. Okay. So. Cool, and then, and then you had a career in other industry after that, right? Yeah, you know, restaurant business for a while, uh, a lot of a lot of little jobs, you know, kind of struggling, figuring out what I'm going to do next. And but ultimately taking a job with my father's industrial tool business. So basically buy, uh, buying and selling anything to cut metal. So drills right. and taps. and. Okay and mills and milling machines and sandpaper you name it okay <laughs> interesting and and so during that whole period how much was climbing a part of your life huge okay. <laughs> it was the only thing that kept me sane okay i had gone through a divorce and i uh, had struggled with visitation with my son and not working in 
uh, a field that I enjoyed, that was I was passionate about. I didn't really like industrial tools, but it seemed like the a logical um, available job. But climbing was really what held it, everything together for me, and particularly doing first ascents. I uh, mm -hmm. on bigger walls if I could find them. In Tennessee, there aren't any, so I had to go over to North Carolina, you know, and <laughs> looking for climbs to do over there. So, yeah, that was my big focus. And um, well, that was mostly all in the in the south. Mm -hmm. In the southeast. Mm -hmm. uh, I did travel around and climb. I actually, that's when I make quite a few trips here to the valley or Joshua Tree or Waco Tanks. Uh, Joshua Tree and Waco Tanks were typical wintering over areas for climbers, and so <clears throat> I would go there for a week or two. Okay, cool. And so out of that, those first ascents and those kind of bigger objectives, is there anything that really stands out as a, as, as a kind of bit of a pinnacle of, of your climbing to some extent? Yeah. You know, I think if we if we want to like really create something or challenge ourselves in climbing, we do pick projects that are going to really challenge us and beyond our ability. And so, one thing I wanted to do was to climb the a free route up the four big walls in the Carolinas. It was kind of the time when Todd Skinner was working on freeing the four big walls in North America, you know, okay. so this was like a, a miniature version of that. Nice. Uh, so there was like white sides in North Carolina, looking glass rock in North Carolina, the North Face, uh, and then Laurel Knob, which is a little more slabby, but taller, a thousand feet. And then Table Rock, South Carolina. So okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, that's my little mini project. <laughs> so, so you did you kind of put up free routes up these walls? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And, and previously, they'd just been aid climbed. Uh, yes. Let's see. Yep. Yep. That's oh. right. Eight <laughs> <laughs> eight climbs or no climbs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, for instance, on Whitesides, uh, there were no climbs, like on what they called the the head wall section of the wall. And so I climbed it in a mixed free and aid fashion initially, but then, you know, worked on free climbing it, you know, and, and then on Laurel Knob, it was um, a climb that had been abandoned, you know, that they pushed it halfway up the wall, and then I climbed climbed it had the, that part, and then pushed it to the top, and then went back to free. So it was it was like um, kind of an ongoing project. Cool. We actually yeah. climbed on white sides together, didn't we? Oh yeah. <laughs> which <laughs> how, route how did can we I forget? do? <laughs> which route did we do? Did we do your route? <laughs> we did uh, traditions. I think, yeah, it's more on the right side of it. Um, and uh, sorry about that last move, you know, with your injured shoulder. <laughs> I don't remember that. You, you had to do like a, 
pull over a bulge that was like really insecure and it was impacting your shoulder at the time. Yeah, I just had the surgery that year, hadn't I? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> I don't actually remember that at all, though. I remember some move in a corner that was cool. Yeah. Oh, okay. We did the original route, not traditions, because okay. the original route does have that corner. And I remember okay. that now. It, it's... It has that big cam and then a little bit run out, you know, to get to the first bolt. And I was like, oh, I hope Hazel doesn't hit the ledge. <laughs> because a lot of people, maybe not a lot of people, but some people fall right there and break their ankles. Okay. So but I you, didn't want that to happen to you. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad I didn't fall there. Um, cool. So it, it feels like in my mind that was like a big kind of chunk of your life. and then, And then came along mental training mm -hmm. right yeah. what what did that transition look like uh kind of midlife crisis kind of thing right okay <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> like i said the industrial tools was not passionate uh kind of job for me it was more just convenient and but i'd made a decision i and the decision was to do my best to be a better entrepreneur, you know, a better business owner. And so I started, I had like a long commute to work, like one hour each way. And so I would listen to audio lectures, you know, back and forth, I'd read books. And so I got better at being an entrepreneur selling industrial tools, but I learned something unexpected, <laughs> which, you know, I think we all learn some things unexpected because how can we really know exactly what we're going to learn beforehand, right? Mm -hmm. sure. So one thing I learned is that uh, it was our responsibility, and I was framing it for me, it was like my responsibility to create a career or a life's work out of what I love to do. Because not only will I be more happy and enjoy my work, but it's also I'll be able to serve others better. Mm -hmm. And I think that part is really important because if we're not serving others through what we do, then it's kind of a selfish endeavor, you know, and uh, and I think that it's really important to uh, this idea of connection with our the groups and with the world itself that's important. Mm -hmm. So I learned that. And so then I was faced with, well, I am working in industrial tools not in what I'm passionate about, uh, which was that the only thing that was really I was passionate about was climbing. You know, I'd mm. gone into geology, the military, and of course, industrial tools and anything else I had done were transient kind of interests. The only unifying thread throughout all of that was climbing. So I was in a position where uh, I became aware of this responsibility and then started investigating like well what would that look like and this was like in the early 90s and so there weren't a lot of climbing gems uh, or even guide services you know to uh, so in other words there were a lot less opportunities mm -hmm. for for having a career mm -hmm. um, but at the, at the same time um, one student, one climber in particular, and then another one later, uh, asked me if I could help them with their fear issues. Uh, 
And they asked me because I had this reputation of being able to deal with fear uh, based on some of the clients that I had done. And so when I started, uh, I, I guess I was listening to like possible, op possible opportunities mm. for working and climbing. And so this was kind of presenting itself. So I kind of followed that direction and, and I started liking studying about mental training as much as I enjoyed climbing. So it seemed like a perfect fit. Mm -hmm. And so that was in the mid nineties, I made a decision to start developing a mental training program and yeah, it's been a long journey ever since. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't realize it's gone. It's gone that far back for you. It's interesting to me that you, um, you know, like there was, there was dissatisfaction with your current situation at the time, and then um, wanting to change it. And actually, looking from a business perspective first, it wasn't like, uh, oh, there's this thing mm. I'm really passionate about. Um, I'll, I'll I'll make my career out of that. Um, it it was kind of like uh, you're actually looking for something. Is 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 interesting to me. I I kind of felt like you might have said that you. The yeah, the like, there was the demand first. Or do you feel like it was all kind of more organic than that? There was no demand. <laughs> But you had well, your there, two there, friends. Yeah, there was two people uh, <laughs> of a demand, you know. But uh, you know, there there was nothing really formalized, you know, mental training wise in climbing at the time. There were some articles that had been written, but no training program where you could teach a clinic, you know, mm. and help people with their fear issues. So there were a lot of unknowns, you know. Like I, I didn't have a method. Mm -hmm. I didn't know if it would provide income. I didn't know if anyone would be interested, mm -hmm. you know, to create the demand. Uh, but I was passionate about it. It was capturing my interest and my attention. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's so crucial for all of us. You know, one, one thing I was doing at the time in my reading and research, and I get a lot of flack for it, maybe not a lot, but I get some flack for it. And that is that I was reading the Carlos Castaneda books. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and so uh, Don Juan is, you know, the teacher for Carlos. Mm -hmm. And he, has, he says a lot of great things in there, you know, that was inspiring me to, to learn and to develop this program. And one thing in particular that Don Juan said is that... Uh, we need to find a path with heart, you know, mm -hmm. basically uh, something we're a path that we're passionate about, you know, and uh, and he basically says that all other paths are worthless. <laughs> you know? If you're not doing what you love, you know, you know, it's you're just spinning your wheels. Mm -hmm. And and I think we are in a lot of ways because, first of all, we're just kind of muddling through our lives. And second of all, like I said before, we're not really um, focused on how to serve others, how to contribute through our particular gifts, you know, to other people. So what would you say to someone who, or, or rather, do you feel like there are enough avenues in the world for every person in the world to do something that they're passionate about or have their career be the thing that they're passionate about so for example 
are there enough people in the world that are passionate enough about making industrial tools to have that be their passion? Do you see what I'm getting at here? I see what you're getting at, and I've, I've wondered about that because, you know, how passionate can you be working at McDonald's, you know, mm -hmm. for instance? Um, so I think that finding that path with heart takes time. Mm -hmm. and, and we actually need to experience a path without heart, <laughs> you know, to actually have that experience to know how empty it can be to spur us on to, you know, search deeper. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that, uh, I think that we, we do, I, all of us are kind of drawn toward something that is most interesting to us, mm -hmm. you know? And so I like to tell people, well, uh, notice how you spend your time, you know, what captures your attention and interest. And I'm not talking about like sitting on a couch and watching football with drinking beer, but like things that are kind of meaningful to you. Like, how do you spend your time? Uh, and that's a clue for moving you in the direction of that path. And I think a lot of people get it wrong a little bit because they, they think, well, I can't do that because it's not going to create any money. So they're mm. thinking about the money before mm. uh, just following, uh, mm. trusting that path with heart, that they're, that's drawing their interest, that it'll lead somewhere. When I first started this mental training, like I said, I, there were so many unknowns, mm. but uh, the most important thing was just to study yeah. and experiment and see where it went. <laughs> and and it, it's, it's, I guess it's kind of paradoxical in that it's a struggle that we all face. It's like we have this motivation toward wanting to achieve you know, like money, for instance, for security. Uh, but in a lot of ways, we uh, life is paradoxical in that we achieve it indirectly. If we just mm. can find a way to focus on and be directed toward what we really enjoy doing, then each step is kind of laid out until uh, it does create a career. Mm. I was kind of fortunate because I was able to work out of the industrial tool business over five years. <laughs> right. That was the bonus for being a family business, you know, so I'd go mm. down to four days and then three days, mm. you know, over time. I see. So there was a bit of a transition. Yeah. An overlap. Yeah. So that was really helpful. Mm. <laughs> cool. I had, a, I had a good question for you. Oh, yeah. I really, I really liked what you said about... Um, it's sort of like the success coming indirectly. It's sort of like, mm -hmm. uh, I, I actually I had this quote that I was really liking recently. It's something like, you know, success will, will come precisely because you've forgotten to think of it. Something like that. Mm -hmm. I, fi I've, I found that in my own life a lot. That the things that, have, that I have really got a lot of value out of have happened because I've just followed this kind of instinctual or intuitive, mm -hmm. uh, you know, 
it's something just pulling you in a direction a little bit and you don't know what's going to happen but all of a sudden you're like oh cool actually I have kind of a viable business right now and I didn't even know how that happened yeah um, and that's kind of one of my motivations for starting the podcast actually <laughs> we're just like you know let's see where it goes see what happens <laughs> I don't know yeah. um so that's cool that you did that um so how were those early years then developing the the, the business well, I had one student the first year. <laughs> one year. A <laughs> whole year. Student. Had one student. <laughs> Were they really rich? <laughs> um, no. Um, but um, I mean, the, the the material was extremely in a rough state, <laughs> so I didn't charge a lot of money, and mm -hmm. um, and I also didn't, um, you know, have a lot of. Um, means in time you know to uh, pursue more students so i was just taking it a step at a time mm -hmm. uh, i think um in, in that was like 95 96 when i started and so in 98 i i went around the southeast and did a lecture series you know about mental training and uh this they knew me in the southeast so mm -hmm. you know i was writing a little bit on my reputation so i'd had some stories about climbing and uh, but I also introduced like what I was doing, you know, with moving into mental training. And so so I did this tour and then uh, signed up students, you know, in mm -hmm. it was in Knoxville, Asheville and Atlanta. And so and once a month I would go on a circle okay. tour and um, and teach, you know. So that was kind of the beginnings of it. Um, but I wanted to uh, mention something about uh, what, you're, what you were saying a moment ago about um, like kind of trusting the process, like mm -hmm. that it'll unfold if you just follow it. You know, and it reminded me of uh, this author, Osho, mm -hmm. O-S-H-O, yeah. mm -hmm. Indian guru. He's He's died, but... He actually never wrote anything, but his followers like um, wrote books about his lectures. But Osho said one thing. He said that it's uh, kind of resonated with and stayed with me is that how can you know where you're going if you've never been there? Mm. Yeah. And then he says you can't. So pay attention to how you're being directed. Because how you're being directed is a feeling that's coming out of you that's happening now in the present moment. And so that kind of, I think, speaks to what you're saying. Mm. It's like you're paying attention to a more intuitive way of being directed where we can just get lost in our analytical thinking, logical thinking, mm -hmm. which a lot of times will just talk us out of mm. experiences. Do you think that's a lot to do with 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 fear, or do you think it's more to do with the overthinking, or do you think it's hard to disentangle the two? Uh, I think it has to do with kind of how the brain is organized, mm -hmm. because the brain is a well, it's a a goal-seeking organ that is constantly uh, assessing situations for survival, mm -hmm. and and it's absolutely comfort-based motivated. 
Mm -hmm. uh, it's looking for the easiest way to do things. And so if we are just tie kind of hooked to our thinking, then we're just going to react to those comfort-based thoughts and mm -hmm. just constantly be uh, moving away from something that is stressful. And that can be kind of like a fear response. It maybe is not like a huge fear, but it's mm -hmm. it's it moves us in that direction, I think. Yeah, it's hard to know whether it's kind of craving for more comfort or aversion for less fear or less discomfort. It's kind of the same sort of thing. Mm. Um, how much do you think that you're... No, we're kind of going off a little bit, but how much do you think your teaching is about uh, trying to teach people to be less um, averse to discomfort? Uh, zero. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I say that because um, the, the, the training is structured around uh, attention and what to focus attention on and expanding that ability. So it's not on the fear, the aversion, the, the desire for comfort. It, it's structured around what attention needs to be focused on and then just getting better at that. Okay. So then going back to what you were saying about um, you know, following um, what's kind of pulling us in the present moment, mm -hmm. Um, what advice would you give to people to help listen to that? Because it's easy to say, uh, to you know, to, to say, oh, oh, be directed by what you're passionate about or, or listen to where your feelings pull. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, the human mind's a bit more complicated than that. So do you have any advice to give to, to, give to people? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Um, and, and I think it... Uh, it's a critical part of mental training, and that is that we need to unhook our thinking from our awareness. In other words, we need to be able to step back and recognize when our mind is thinking and not just be drawn in and uh, react to it. Uh, and one thing that we've been teaching in the free mind training over the last few years is um, body awareness drills where we give people the experience of what attention is like being focused somatically, you know, in body movement and breathing, relaxing, things like that. And, and so when they do that drill over time, they get more and more of an experience of what it feels like to have attention in the body and in the senses, and then they can recognize when it goes into thinking more. And so in, intuition, like being able to follow that and follow your heart, those are feeling and sensory, that's feeling and sensory based, it's body based. And so having practices like meditation or body awareness drills like Qigong or Tai Chi, uh, even yoga, you know, can help you start pulling your awareness away from thinking uh, so that you're not just, you know, following the thinking and and not being able to be directed. Okay. So sort of going back to what you were saying before about how our, our minds are organized in this way where we're kind of primed for survival. Um, 
surely our kind of feeling selves are also primed for survival to some extent, right? So mm-hmm. we feel stress in the body, um, even in situations where it's kind of irrational to be stressful, right? So if I'm hearing you collect correctly, you know, it's like, like quietening this th- overthinking brain, listening more to the body. But how do we know to tr- trust our bodies or this sensory? How, how do we know to trust that over our thinking selves? Um, how do you know to trust it? Well, when you, when you climb, uh, your body has a natural intelligence for balance, right? So when we climb, if we pay attention to that, in how the body has this natural intelligence, and then we start experiencing following that, and maybe noticing when the mind is interfering with that process, then we start, uh, I think, developing the belief that we it is really important to trust the body. Mm-hmm. You know, so in other words, uh, there's an intelligence there that we can actually experience if we're paying attention to it. Uh, and then through that experience, we're kind of convinced. And, you know, the mind has intelligence too. You know, I'm not here to just uh, be negative about the mind. We, we do need to have uh, critical thinking, intellectualized about things. I mean, we're doing that right now, right? We're talking, mm-hmm. we're, having, we're thinking about these concepts. Uh, it's just, it's important to know when to think and when not to think. You know, mm-hmm. when to focus attention in the mind to think about concepts and then when to turn that off and shift attention in the body to take action to do things. Mm-hmm. And climbing, as you know, is like very, um, can be very clear in that way, in mm-hmm. that distinction. I know there's a lot of gray area between, but uh, climbing can basically be structured under, uh, in a framework of stopping to think, collect information, make a decision, and then shift into action to climb. Where, mm-hmm. where you do need to pay attention to how you're moving your body and, uh, and focusing on your breathing, certain amount of body tension, those sorts of things. How much do you feel like uh, people's well-being is uh, related to how much they're either too in their heads or in the bodies or or the balance between the two uh, i think it it's uh it's pro- i think it's directly related like uh, it could be a linear relationship between you know uh how we feel mentally and and uh how much we're just lost in our mind with thinking uh when when you think about depression and uh, PTSD and uh, different illnesses like that, uh, it's a contraction of connection. You know, we're we're separating, we're feeling alone, like we don't belong, like we're ostracized. You know, nobody wants us. And what happens is we just spend all of our time with our attention lost in our mind doing just habitual repetitive thinking that um, 
ends up being like it, it can be like a downward spiral just that feeds on itself and so when when we can shift our attention out of the thinking mind and more into the body and inner senses then our attention is present first of all you know to what is actually going on now in the moment and we're we've changed what we focus on like i can look at you and i can see you know your hair your eyes and whatever uh, i'm not in my mind thinking about what i need to do tomorrow mm-hmm. you know so we can look at this like very practically uh with kind of structured around the flow of attention so when when we feel separate and alone you know our attention just tends to go from our external situation we might have different relationships that are struggles for us and we're allow our attention just to dwell in our mind thinking about that and so a lot of the body awareness drills that we've been doing with athletes is to get them to shift their attention into their body and through their senses you know to what they can actually see and hear and feel we we uh we have them kind of focus double arrowed like uh internally like their internal situation of uh focusing on breathing relaxing proper posture so just getting a sense of you know your your internal body situation and then maintaining that awareness and then start layering toward the external situation like uh feeling maybe wind or the temperature on your skin then what you can hear and we're usually doing it with eyes closed at this time and then open your eyes and then uh look and see what what's in your environment and we have them do it like first thing in the morning and outside preferably you know and bare feet on on the ground or on a rock or something uh so that they're out in nature and and they can uh i think it's it connects us more you know and and so and and that's the thing the connection is the key word i think because these different kinds of you know mental illnesses of depression and ptsd it is this like contraction and it's a physiological contraction also like that the the body also tenses under trauma and so we're looking to relax the body expand it and then shift attention out toward what we're connected with uh so my attention is on you know what i can see there you know the cup or listening to the sounds i in order for me to hear the sounds or to see the cup my attention has to be there out not in my head it has to be projected out there just like when we do the falling practice we have them look down but a lot of students don't see anything because they're attentions in their mind thinking maybe about the fear or wondering why they have to look down or or whatever you know so we have them cue in on something down in their fall zone so that kind of forces them to project their attention through their sense of sight to actually have the attention in the fall zone so i think that just uh, something very tangible that can 
keep us connected with our relationships, with the rock, uh, with the world in general. Hmm. And do you feel like this sort of where you direct your attention is kind of like the cornerstone of your teaching? I think uh, I think so. It's it's uh, one of the foundational parts of it. You know, it's we say attention focused in the moment on the task. You know, uh, but yeah, attention like, but also developing awareness because if you're if we're not aware that uh, our, our of our motivation or where our attention should be or the kind of internal dialogue that we go have going on then we're we're not going to be as effective in being able to you, you know direct our attention but but yeah just attention is a, a core thing in fact i like to tell students to consider that the only thing they can control is their attention because uh you can direct your attention toward thinking, you know, to help control what you're thinking about. You can direct your attention toward the body for t taking certain actions, you know, so that your body can take certain actions. But attention is essential in anything that we do. It's like it's like a, a foundational part of everything that is kind of operating above it, you might say. How do you define attention? The intentional directing of awareness. Okay. Yeah, like I can, um, I can be aware of everything in this, this space, but then when I intentionally direct it toward you, then it becomes attention. Okay. Um, that's my definition, I guess. Uh, I think there are other people have other definitions of it, but when you, when you know, philosophers or psychologists, you know, look to define consciousness and awareness and attention is kind of an outgrowth of those, I think. They can't define it. They, mm. they can't really put words to it. Mm. It's just, it's this, this presence, this life energy that we have that, uh, that we can't really define with words and language. Mm. Or it's very difficult. Yeah. Nobody's nobody that I know of has really done it yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and what do you think about this kind of this this concept of um, I don't know a phrase I use sometimes is like like you, you can turn the volume up on the kind of the feedback you get from your senses, or you can you can you can have attention be more focused, you know, because I can like look at your face or I can like really look at your face, you know, mm -hmm. or I can hear a sound and I can not really be aware of that sound or I can actually kind of listen to it from this like a, with a, with a greater attention, level of attention. Um, do you talk about that much in your teaching, kind of like the quality of attention? Uh, yes. Um... And a couple of things come to mind. One is concentration exercises. Uh, so you can use like a, you can start with something simple like a candle flame, and uh, and just focus on the candle flame. And when you notice 
Well, what we have the athletes do is they're looking at the candle flame and, and they have a sheet of paper with a pen uh, just to the right side of it. So every time they notice that they're thinking about something that's not about the action mm. of the candle flame, they make a mark. That's cool. You know, for five minutes. Yeah. And so in five minutes, they can look at, okay, I, I was thinking about the candle flame, but I have, you know, mm. 13 or 20 or whatever thoughts about, mm. like, how long this is going to take, or I got a lot to do. Oh, Why is Arnold having me test? do this? You know? <laughs> yeah. So, so we kind of start with that, and then we bump up the difficulty a little bit <laughs> and say, okay, now, same thing but make a mark for any thoughts. So in other words, we want them mm -hmm. to just kind of follow the, the flame uh, with their visual sense, you know, and generally the flame will flicker a little bit. It'll get taller and shorter, mm -hmm. the tip will split, you know, and, and so there's a lot of change going on just moment to moment to moment that they need to like really kind of follow almost like a cat following following mm -hmm. you know or stalking a bird you know it's like every time the bird makes a little move the cat's shifting around to uh, really be intensely focused on that but of course there are lots of thoughts that come up mm -hmm. you know you might be thinking well what's the flame going to do next you know and uh and in fact uh you know they maybe they have 15 marks when of just thoughts outside of the candle flame, and then mm -hmm. it might go to 40, you know, when they're doing that five minutes where they have to put down any thought that they're thinking. Mm. So it's kind of a concentration exercise uh, that can help intensify attention. I feel like that's slightly different though, right? Because um, that's kind of like, for, for for what duration can you fix your attention on this thing, right? Mm -hmm. Without your mind wandering. Um, but you can also, I feel like you can kind of look at the flame. Yeah, <laughs> my brain wandered off something then I was like, oh, I don't know if I should say that. Um, but I feel like you could look at the flame or you can kind of like really look at the flame, you know? And yeah. um, and then something else came to mind, which is essentially this like, you know, boredom is just a failure to pay enough attention, right? Because mm -hmm. um, you can look at the, the flame and say, you know, this is boring. What's interesting about the flame? But if, if you pay enough attention to the flame in that moment, you actually realize it's really beautiful and it's really cool and it's kind of like moving in all these different ways and you notice it splits and mm -hmm. all that kind of thing. So it's like... There's, there's duration, but then there's also kind of quality in each moment of attention. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like kind of the... Yeah, I don't know. You tell me what you think about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, one thing that comes to mind is... Uh, and it, part of it comes from the 17th century samurai tradition. Like uh, Miyamoto Masashi, in his book, The uh, Book of Five Rings, I think... Uh, he talks about the the samurai's glare and and other other samurai i think yagumanori also talks about it to a degree but basically it's this it's like they they furrow their brow a little bit like that uh 
so they're they're kind of pulling their their brows together to uh, intensify their glare or their attention on on the, the opponent, I guess. Yeah. Okay. You know, so um, you know, it's like the difference between just looking and you know looking mm -hmm. intently. You know, so mm -hmm. uh, I think intention, uh, like it can be, you know, you can. Uh, intention can be maybe like that, where it's uh, it's just a a low focus, low intensity, but then it can increase the volume. Mm -hmm. And intention is just attention focused, like in the direction of a choice. Like mm -hmm. you're choosing the I'm choosing to focus my attention, you know, on on your face, your eyes, you know, and so uh, this. Doing the this furrowing the brow, this uh, samurai glare that he was talking about is something physiological that you're doing, you know, with your with your forehead that impacts what's going on in your your cerebral cortex, like because it's right behind there, right? This mm -hmm. is like uh, what we do with the body, in other words, affects the mind and the brain and vice versa. Mm-hmm. How do you how much do you think mindfulness and kind of like the modern sort of craze of mindfulness fits in with your teaching? I think it fits in a lot. Uh, I, I prefer the word presence. Um, but uh, mindfulness or presence, uh, I would say, is like paying attention to what's going on in the moment. And sometimes thinking is going on in the moment, you know, but paying attention to thinking is different than just being lost in thought. So just letting your mind wander and uh, that's not mindfulness. It's like when we're uh, paying attention to what we're thinking or using our thinking capacity to do critical thinking if we're planning our day or or working on a project, uh, I think mindfulness is maybe more understood as uh, focusing on the body, like the breathing or uh, sensory based. But I think it's uh, probably one of the main tools, you know, for understanding the difference between awareness and thinking, like we've been talking mm -hmm. about. Yeah, okay. So then just bringing it back to climbing, I guess. Um, in, in what ways do you feel like people are kind of limited by uh, a, a lack of awareness um, or a lack of knowledge that there is this gap between awareness and thinking? Well, I think, uh, I think we're all in, you know, have a somewhere in a continuum between like really being hooked to our thinking and having it separated where we're operating more from awareness. So um, when when we're over here on one side, we're, we're really hooked to our thinking and we, we think we are our thoughts, then we're going to be more likely to react to the motivations of the brain and the mind which again is going to be more achievement and comfort based like not it's achievement but comfort 
based in the future. It's like it's constantly looking to the future mm-hmm. for the comfort because there, I, don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with seeking comfort in the present moment as long as, you know, when you're climbing, you're going toward a goal. So you're going to be entering stress and doing work, you know, so, but your, your comfort motivation is guiding you to do it the easiest way. So, so essentially you're, you're, when we're hooked like this with our thinking, we're going to end up being victims to an achievement motivation and seeking comfort in the future. Like we always want to be somewhere where we're not. Mm-hmm. And, and so, uh, we can be climbing that way. We just want to have done the route, like you talk mm-hmm. about. Uh, and and then, of course, the ego plays into that, where it gets a little check mark, you know, to validate itself based on these achievements. But we're never really happy where we are. And when we do achieve the goal, we're only happy for a short period of time. And then we get depressed and we set another goal just to rescue ourselves, you know, from mm. uh, the anxiety or the depression that we're experiencing. <laughs> <laughs> This sound depressing. Sorry uh, about that. <laughs> a little bit depressing, but I, I feel like so many climbers are in that trap. And, you know, I've, I've been in that trap myself a little bit before. Maybe, maybe not to any too, too bad extent, but um, I really liked what you said about how, you know, wanting to achieve is just seeking comfort for your future self. You know, like once mm-hmm. I've achieved this goal, then I can kind of bask in the comfort I'll find there. But yeah. of course, as soon as you achieve that said goal, um, you're not basking in the comfort because there's this, then there's this like, oh, but I could achieve something greater, you know? No, or it I wasn't need enough. to. Or, yeah, need I need to. to achieve something greater. It's never enough. Yeah. <laughs> so just linking this back to you, I mean, maybe some of your, maybe, maybe I'm reading into this too much, but potentially your goals or ambitions are more within your coaching and teaching than they are with your climbing these days or or in your whole life how do you stop yourself from falling into this trap with your business it's difficult (laughs) (laughs) but yeah my my goals are more in the business right now and um and i i took an assessment recently there's a really, really interesting book that I read called First Break All of the Rules. And it's, it was written by the Gallup organization. It's a, an organization here in the U.S. that uh, does surveys and studies, you know. And, and so for 30 years, they collected a lot of information on managers and employees to, to collect data to find out what makes a great manager. Um, and, and so it's a phenomenal book and they distilled down to like 12 qualities and they're in order and it's really helpful, but they, they developed this, um, assessment that you can take that I took that's called the Clifton strengths. And, uh, this psych, uh, this psychologist that, uh, apparently developed what he calls strength psychology, like focusing on people's strengths Mm. and not their weaknesses. Uh, He partnered with the Gallup organization to help create this, you know, assessment. And I took it and uh, this is a long story 
to get to answering your question, but uh, the top of the, they give you the five qualities out of 34 that are your most prominent ones. And my top one was achiever. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, and it gives a description about it. And the description is, well, you know, you, you have to succeed to feel good about yourself. <laughs> you know? wow. So in other words, it's the very thing that I teach people not to do. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I kind of knew that about myself already. And, and so I've noticed that some days I'm really productive and I feel good. <laughs> Mm. Other days are not so productive, and I don't feel so good, mm. you know. And but uh, I'm, I know, you know, that I'm supposed to separate my identity from outcome, not feel good or bad based on what I'm creating. Uh, but I, so I'm, I'm in process of unhooking that. Uh, but it takes time, you know, so having awareness of our tendencies, you know, is the beginning, you know, mm -hmm. so, so I've been kind of monitoring that, you know, over the years and, uh, and I'm getting better at just being okay with however the day is going, just giving my best effort. Uh, but it can be a real struggle, you know, mm -hmm. for, for some people and, and it can be that for me. Isn't it cool, uh, I don't know if you find this about being a, a mental training coach, but I, I love how everything I I learn, I can, I first apply to myself, you know, yeah. it's like a win-win, right, you know, because you can, you get to teach, it's not like being a, oh, maybe you could, you could say this, but maybe if you teach, like, you say kindergarten, um, you know, the stuff you're teaching, the content's not really applicable to yourself, you can't take much from basic mm -hmm. arithmetic or something but what we're teaching you can always apply it to yourself right so it's mm -hmm. it, it feels yeah it's a real bonus yeah like, <laughs> i feel yeah. quite smug sometimes i have to say <laughs> I have to joke well, myself it's like a, every book i buy is a business expense you know mm, yeah yeah and but yeah it's like i have the opportunity well we have we're both working in this field you know we have the opportunity to um to learn more about mental training, which means we need to learn more about ourselves and, and how we are uh, act, how we're up, able mm -hmm. to apply or not apply to different qualities. Um, and you've probably heard that we teach what we most need to learn, you know, and for me, mm -hmm. I, there's some people think that, you know, I'm this warrior, you know, never afraid and, mm -hmm. uh, and what they don't understand is that I'm on the same journey as they are, you know, and there's there's certain aspects, you know, about my own mental fitness that is not so strong, mm. you know, but through working and learning more about it and teaching it, uh, I get a deeper understanding of it in how I am, you know, performing in that way. But it's also important for being able to teach you know it's like in if i have the experience of uh, tying my identity to outcome and um, fearing failure or fearing falling whatever it might be then i can relate to what the mm -hmm. student is experiencing you know yeah. and, and i think we all experience those 
limitations to varying degrees. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's true. You know, um, you have to be able to experience the things that you're then trying to teach. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, because people do that with me as well, right? A lot of my coaches put me on this pedestal of, you know, you, you're never afraid, you've never been scared. And what kind of a teacher would I be if I'd never been scared, <laughs> right? It just doesn't yeah. make any sense. So what interests me is that, um, and and because it's somewhat relatable, is that you know you were a climber, you were doing these bold um, ascents, and you were kind of you had this reputation for being able to manage your fear, and then you went into mental training and 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 you learn all of these things from outside sources. Um, how do you do you? How is it that people like yourself can be? very good at managing fear without the training? Uh, it's just uh, a lot of nature. In other words, they're coming into the world with certain innate abilities, tendencies that are helpful. Uh, and, and part is nurture, you know, they, uh, if they like, if I'm coming into this world with a certain ability to deal with fear and then I go climbing where I get into fearful situations, then I get to practice, right? And I can get better at it. But uh, I don't really know why. It's just uh, other than, well, you know, I'm doing it, you know, so that must count for something. Uh, but uh, when you start digging into it, you really start finding some interesting stuff. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> um, so I found that um, I was able to deal with like physical risk, like the fear that mm. comes from physical risk, you know, so like so like on white sides, for instance, you know, putting up these first ascents that are run out and people say they're dangerous and wow, you know, Arno can really keep it together, you know, and uh, manage his fear. That's fine, but why didn't I climb 513 at the time? You know, I was climbing like 512 routes that had these physical dangers on white sides, but I wasn't going over to the Obed and these other climbing areas where climbers were developing hard sport climbs. Mm -hmm. So... When I started digging into the mental training more, I found out that I, I was hiding in my comfort zone on white sides. Things that is mm. kind of easier for me, mm. instead of getting out of my comfort zone and dealing with mm -hmm. the mental risk of fear of failure. That's mm -hmm. what was keeping me away from difficult sport climbs. Mm -hmm. You know, so again, it's like when, when you start digging into something, you learn things you didn't expect. Mm -hmm. You know, and so. I, I realized that I wasn't really as uh, fearless as I thought, mm -hmm. you know, when it, particularly when it comes to psychological fear and fear of failure, those sorts of things. Yeah. It's like maybe people have their soft spots and mm -hmm. uh, the things that scare them most. And just because everyone was looking to you thinking, oh, wow, he's so brave on white sides whilst we're being comfortable on the sport routes. Um, paradoxically, actually, you were comfortable, more comfortable doing that. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I've kind of noticed that in my own climbing as well, actually. Um, 
and which is why I, I think uh, I'm climbing on magic line now because I've tended to avoid long projects mm-hmm. um, because it is uncomfortable to kind of devote so much time to something. Um, so what do you feel like, uh, maybe you've already answered this, but currently now kind of, where do you feel like your kind of mental training is failing you most or kind of what areas is it not working <laughs> as you would like it to? <laughs> um, that's a great question. <laughs> um, one of the real challenging parts of mental inquiry, like mental training, uh, you dig into you know your own psychology and you really dig up some stuff <laughs> and and some of it is not not so nice you know? <laughs> so um, for me, you know the thing that's challenging me the most, I guess right now is like a real belief in myself, you know, and so I've been studying different psychology, like attachment psychology and um, and some therapies that grow out of that, like emotionally focused therapy. And because I, I want to, I want to understand more about PTSD because we're starting to work with veterans and so forth. Um, but there, attachment psychology, you know, helps reveal, helps you understand that some some things happen in your childhood that mm. you know created or helped create who you who you are now. Like so, mm-hmm. when uh, when I look at uh, some of the things that I'm struggling with the most in mental training, uh, it seems to be around beliefs and like belief in myself, trusting in myself, not feeling like an imposter. Mm. You know, like. Uh, feeling like I belong on the national stage, let's say, or global stage Mm. as an expert in mental training. Mm. Uh, And what's interesting is like having this um, limitation, but and also being aware of it, like, and Mm. and knowing that at least at an intellectual level, I know that it's false. You know, and so I I can sense, I've known this for a while, you know, but I can sense, you know, over time that it's changing. Like my belief, in other words, is becoming more and more toward, I do believe that I belong, Mm -hmm. you know, as a mental training expert. So like anything, I think it's just a long journey, you know, but it's, it's so comfortable to just stay in your little shell, you know, Mm -hmm. and, um, and not venture out. Like a lot of times we feel very certain about what's right and wrong, what's good and bad, what's me and what's you. And when we start softening that boundary and learning and growing, we start realizing that, uh, we're not very right about things and it's more gradational like I'm partly right on things not partly wrong you know and and then if I'm having a conversation with someone else they also are partly right and partly wrong in our understanding of certain concepts like you can go 
you can use political, you know, issues or anything like that. But uh, in other words, when you start digging into and learning more about like mental training and, and your own self, you realize that there's so much more to learn that you can start feeling like you don't know very much. Whereas it's just the opposite when you're in your closed little world. You feel like you know everything uh, just because you you have a very clear boundary around it. You know, you don't mm -hmm. know all of this stuff and you're discounting like mm -hmm. there's nothing out there to know. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot you said there. I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to filter it through. At the start, you, you were talking about beliefs and kind of that, you know, from a rational perspective that, um, you know, you're, you're an expert in your field, right? Um, I haven't, in your teachings, I haven't heard you talk too much about belief. Is that becoming a bit more of a part of your teaching now that you're learning a little bit about it in yourself? Uh, it is, um, but it's, um, it's structured around like mental inquiry, like, uh, the kinds of thoughts that come up and emotion. Okay. So, uh, for example, if I, if I have a thought that like, I'm an, I'm an imposter, let's just use that one. Okay then first of all, I need to be aware of that I have this kind of a thought, mm -hmm. you know, and, and then I need to know how am I going to work with it. Mm -hmm. So you have to choose, you have to choose to work with it or repress it, you know, and some mental training programs uh, take the approach of repressing negative thoughts and, and just thinking positive and and that can be helpful but I feel like it's a short-term fix and so uh, there are certain methods where and um, different psychotherapies really emphasize this uh, that we need to recognize the thought we need to allow it to exist like I even honoring it as it has something valuable that it's making you aware of. Okay, okay, mm. so, hmm, I'm having a thought about an, being an imposter or not belonging. You know? mm. And then the next step would be, how is it manifesting itself in your physiology? Because it's usually a contraction, you know, mm. and what I experience when I have thoughts of not belonging or uh, things like that, or not being worthwhile, I feel a tension in my back, in my neck, you know, mm -hmm. like my head is like being tucked into my, into my shoulders. And, uh, and everyone that has different limiting thoughts will experience some sort of physiological contraction, mm -hmm. usually from the neck through the torso area. Mm -hmm. And it might be in the gut or the chest or the neck mm -hmm. or shoulders. And so again, it's like the negative thought is a, is a contraction and it contracts the body physiologically. So, so I think if I can 
investigate that thought in the present moment and how it's manifesting itself in my body, in my physiology, then I can relax and expand my body, right? To do something with my body to counter uh, the effect of that thought. And then I can start nurturing the thought to find out what its needs, what are the needs that it's expressing. And then find a way to get those basic needs met. Okay, mm-hmm. so um, what what I've learned about all of that is that when we have this mental dialogue going on in our mind, we generally have two voices. One that uh, is more of what we call a negative thinking, like uh, it's not going to be safe. You shouldn't take that. You know, you're risking mm-hmm. a lot. You know, you you might fail. Don't do it. And the other one is like, well, come on, you you know, you you want to challenge yourself, you know, uh, this is why you climb, you know, get on the route, you know, and so one the negative thoughts that we have tend to be uh, making us aware of a basic need for comfort, safety, and security. It's kind of the base of the Mas- Maslow pyramid, mm-hmm. you know, about physical needs that we have mm-hmm. for for, you know, a roof over our heads, food and shelter, things like that. But the other one, which is more the top of the Maslow Pyramid, are growth needs. So the other voice is like for wanting to engage stress, Mm -hmm. challenge, um, so we can learn and grow, right? Mm -hmm. So we can start seeing, okay, I have these two voices going on in my head and the negative ones are the ones that I seem to want to repress, but they're telling me something about some basic needs. And then we can, uh, we can do something that will help satisfy both of them. And what we do is we take a small action step. Because a small action step is not, it's going to be not, not very unsafe or insecure or uncomfortable. It's going to be a little, un- little uncomfortable, right? So we kind of get that basic need met by just finding a small way to take a step. But we're also moving in a direction of stress and growth, right? And mm-hmm. you, you said it. You said it when we were in Chattanooga. <laughs> you know, we, we went climbing, I think, a deep creek somewhere, and uh, we're looking at, at a climb, and uh, we're wondering, uh, we're wondering, oh, is it going to be too much of a reach for your shoulder? And you, and you said, well, let's have a look. Mm-hmm. <laughs> remember, I don't know if yeah, you remember no, that, but, yeah. it, but it's like, uh, yeah, well, let's just take a small step. And, mm-hmm. and because then you have the experience to reveal reality to you, mm-hmm. not just an intellectual looking at it and say, mm-hmm. wow, it looks too far to reach, you know. Uh, so... So in other words, we have this process, inquiry process, to investigate the thoughts that are coming from beliefs that we can, uh, and toward the end of this process, we can, we, we can work on turning the thought around, but I do belong. Mm-hmm. You know, it can be something like, I exist, therefore I am, and... That existence is enough to justify that I belong to this larger world. I don't have to prove it. You know, it's like, and that's why we uh, we also have 
athletes, uh, athletes like observe their egos because uh, the ego is constantly, you know, getting a sense of itself from external achievements and external things. And so we're helping them unhook their identity from outcomes so they can start seeing things more objectively. And, and then that it, it starts changing the kinds of thoughts that you have, well, the kind of beliefs that you have and the kind of thoughts that come from those beliefs. Oh gosh, there's so much there. <laughs> it's kind of, it sounds kind of messy, you know, all of that going on, but, um, but it can be really an intriguing process, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, if we can, one of the biggest skills, you know, even in climbing, you know, if we can just relax into the moment and be present and just do what needs to be done, we're like uh, way ahead of the game, mm. you know, but so much of us wants to be at the next rest or wants to be done with the climb or does, um, why does it have to be so hard? I thought I could get some pro here. Why is it so thin? You know, it, it, all different mm -hmm. kinds of thoughts like that. And when we're digging in, when I'm digging into this kind of inquiry process for myself, uh, I can just enjoy it, mm -hmm. you know, like, uh, and, and you can in, enjoy it more and not feel like you have to be at uh, the next comfort zone. If you unhook thinking from awareness, so you can just see, think for what it is. It's like my mind thinks for me, okay, that's its job. It's creating these thoughts. Well, um, I'm going to work with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you feel like um, um, when, when kind of negative thoughts arise, of, of course you can do this kind of inquiry, but then sometimes, you know, you're in the moment and you can't do kind of a inquiry into into these thoughts mm -hmm. do you feel like there's a space th that climbers could could kind of analyze their thoughts or, or just humans in general um and see kind of which thoughts negative thoughts are kind of habitual which ones mm -hmm. reoccur more often and inquire into those so then in the moment they might notice them more easily do you think that's a worthwhile yeah, I mean, uh, it's helpful to to do this just in your daily life uh, because they'll come up there just like they do in climbing uh, so you can kind of get a sense of what they are. Uh, but they, I think they, they, they really tend to, if we're looking for like some thoughts that are maybe uniformly that we all experience, it's it's about uh, thoughts around separation and loss of connection. You know, uh, so there's another really important aspect from attachment psychology is that uh, we are inextricably interrelated, interconnected with everything around us. Okay, so right now we're connected in conversation, we're connected to these seats, you know, we couldn't sit here without the seats, we couldn't have this podcast without all of this equipment. It's like everything is in relationship with something else. 
And so people in significant relationship, you know, to significant partner, uh, they need a connection. You know, it's like we, we need each other. And so uh, when, when we feel a threat to that bond, we can fall into fight or flight mode. Uh, and so if, if we can observe that process in our daily lives, you know, then, uh, you know, how we're losing the connection, you know, feeling like we don't belong, feeling alone, uh, then when we get into climbing, we can do it in a more pithy way. Like we can, uh, we can, if we notice a thought like, uh, you know, this climbs too hard for me, we can just take a breath and then um, take a small step. You know, it's mm -hmm. like it doesn't have to be long, you know, like mm -hmm. we can we can shorten uh, this whole process, you know, from what we might do in regular life where we have more time to reflect on it mm -hmm. into something that's quicker, you know, mm -hmm. when we're actually in a situation, a uh, high intense situation. Mm -hmm. What you were saying there about taking a small step made me think of how, um, you know, people think about their comfort zones and I, I, I find with a lot of the people that I, I end up teaching that they think that the, the growth needs to happen really far outside of what's comfortable for them. Um, so, you know, for a really tangible example, fear of falling. People feel like they need to take huge falls to kind of overcome a fear of falling. Um, but it's it's too much, right? It's too stressful. Mm -hmm. um, how how much do you feel like what what you've just spoken about with taking these small steps fits into your approach for tackling fear of falling? Uh, it's a it's a shift in motivation again. You know, it's like when we when we're motivated toward achievement, then we can approach falling practice the same way, you know, and we're, we're practicing just to get it over with, you know, we're not. And so that's when we'll get, you know, quote advice, you know, about, well, just uh, get up every gear and take some whippers, you know, and you'll get it out of your system. Um, but they're they're learning but they're learning the wrong thing you know and and the wrong thing that they're learning is that they tense their whole body <clears throat> their whole body and mind when they're falling like that <clears throat> so it means that they're 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 ingraining into their neural networks that um, this way of respond or reacting to it and so a shift in motivation is toward uh, seeing learning as something that's incremental, as a way of converting something that's stressful into something that's more comfortable. And you can, uh, the thousands of students I've taught, you know, it's just like, it, they can't process a lot of stress. They process a little at a time. And <clears throat> I, had, I had a student two weeks ago, I think, and um, 
she was just hanging on top rope and had difficulty just pushing out, you know, impacting the wall. Um, and by the end of the session, she was able to, I don't know, take a five foot top rope fall, uh, which was huge for her, right? And so uh, if we would just like get her up, even, even if she's on top rope, you know, and like coaching her toward taking a five foot top rope fall right away, uh, we, she might eventually let go and take the fall, but she'd probably scream and ingrain fear, have her fear response. It's just like uh, learning has to be incremental mm-hmm. in, for it to be effective. It's like you can't learn calculus, you know, by just like taking the test at the end of the textbook. Mm-hmm. It's like it, it's even there, it's incremental, right? And mm-hmm. so um, falling is, is such a weird aspect in climbing because it's something that it's very easy to avoid, well, or to to want to avoid, you know. It's like eventually it catches up to you, but... Um, there's a fear there. We can push it away for a long time, not face it. Uh, and then when we finally, uh, someone convinces us that if we want to improve, like push through a plateau that we need to practice falling, we just do it totally the wrong way. Why? Because of we're not conscious of the, the mind's motivation, you know, toward comfort in the future. You know, it wants to achieve the goal of getting over the fear of falling, and it wants to be comfortable, you know, in that mm-hmm. future state, you know. And, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, it'd be really helpful for climbers to realize how cl- climbing is a microcosm of their life, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, are you not interested in being present for your life? You know, it's like, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's like, this thing, like I said before, is like we're constantly want to be somewhere we're not, mm-hmm. you know, at some point in the future. And in falling instance, we want to be done, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. But, you know, you probably experience when you're teaching falling incrementally that the students can actually enjoy the whole process, mm-hmm. you know. What a bonus. Yeah. It's it's so fun teaching full practice and... And, and having people buzzing afterwards, you know, because they're just like, I, c- I couldn't imagine mm-hmm. having fallen and actually feeling okay with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, do you ever find, because cause really everything you've said just seems so, um, so much like common sense, right? It seems so um, intuitive. Um, why do you think it is that we seem to have these kind of like blind spots in climbing where... Or, or in life, where we, we don't imp- apply kind of what seems to just be basic common sense. Well, it, it seems like basic common sense, you know, when when we reflect on it. <clears throat> but some people might say, well, it makes common sense to focus on the goal if you want to win. But I wouldn't agree with that because you're distracting your attention from what you actually need to do moment to moment to work toward the goal, right? So I think the basic thing is that our society is just structured in this way where uh, everything is about results and, you know, advertisement is all about comforts. Uh, and, and so we're just habituated toward 
uh, it feeds right into, like I said, the mind's natural goal orientation and comfort in the future motivation. And so that's why, again, uh, developing awareness is so important part of mental training so that we don't just get drawn in by that. So I, I kind of get the feel from you that you, you know, you're not, okay, this is going to sound really obvious, but you know, you're not just interested in helping people climb better or harder or, or, or even just enjoying climbing more. You're, you're really interested in the transferability of, of mental training and how mental training kind of permeates not only us as individuals, but how the changes we make individually m may affect how society is kind of structured or run. Or, mm -hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, from the very beginning, I, I did feel like this material was relevant beyond climbing, uh, but I wanted to kind of prove it in the climbing vehicle, the medium that I understood. And so... I think I'm going to leave it. Um, <laughs> and so, so yeah, when you, when you think about uh, accepting responsibility or uh, choices that we make, you know, these different uh, parts that make up the material and the method, it's not relevant just to climbing. And so uh, I wanted the material to be transferable and applicable to uh, people in general, you know. And, and so when we think about uh, some of the issues that we're facing right now in the world, uh, there is a lot of it's because of stinking thinking, you know, like people are not thinking very effectively or they're, they're not listening very effectively, you know, to uh, the, the other group. You know, politics is, you know, a perfect example of that. Where I'm right, you're wrong rules today. You know, it's either this or that. Uh, and one of the most uh, important things I've learned, particularly in the last few years, is that it's important to make a shift from either or kinds of thinking to both and. So if you think about that, uh, both conservatives and liberals are necessary for a society functioning well. You know, so in other words, there are certain qualities that conservatives have that are important. There are certain qualities that liberals have that are important. And so it's not uh, either the conservatives or the liberals, because you know what would happen if you got rid of all the conservatives or all of the liberals? The group that's left would split into... <laughs> Conservative and liberals. Yeah, do you know why? No. Because the world requires balance. <laughs> the thing is, I feel, I feel like that's quite an, an American-centric way of looking at it because although we have similar kind of political... You, you know, you could be right or left-leading. We don't have two parties in the mm. UK. You know, it's just a little bit more complicated. The, the political parties and and I, and I I don't know whether they balance themselves out the way that conservatives and liberals do in the states 
I know. Yeah. So I'm coming with a bit of a different frame of mind. <laughs> we we have a, a pretty black and white situation <laughs> yeah. in the U.S., I guess. <laughs> um, but um, this concept of both and, I think, is important. If you think about um, any cycle, like stopping and moving and climbing, night and day, um, focusing attention in the mind to do intellectualizing and critical thinking and being able to focus in the body to take action. You know, it's like a cycle is made up of like two different poles kind of that kind of dynamically flow, you know, between each other. And both, so both are necessary. You know, you can't have one without the other. And so, uh, if we start shifting our thinking from either or to both and, then I think we'll be able to work together better and solve problems a lot better. Mm-hmm. I like that. That makes a lot of sense. And so where do you feel like your tr- mental training is going then with regard to moving, you know, making it broader than just climbing? Uh, moving into uh, beyond climbing, Mm-hmm. We're we're starting to work with veterans, you know, that have PTSD issues and uh, family members that are dealing with a veteran that has those issues because they're they're struggling too, you know, to find a way to help and and so we're doing programs using climbing uh, as a way to help build back the connection and the support team and the trust you know, that uh, seems to be broken uh, when people are suffering from these kinds of issues. Uh, Trust is a really interesting thing. It's almost like the degree of trust is like the degree of glue that holds a relationship together, you know. And so so we're starting to work with um, putting the veterans in climbing situations and very similar drills like what mm-hmm. we do, you know, the falling drills and mm-hmm. some movement drills. and um, But then, you know, of course, we're, and when they come down, we're, we're talking about and bridging it, you know, beyond climbing. It's not the purpose isn't to learn how to fall, but um, what kind of fears came up, you know, around trust, you know, with their belayer. And, uh, and so we can talk about that and bridge it to uh, some tangible tools that they can do in their lives. So we're, we're doing that and we're also working with uh, some first responders, you know, of, of like firefighters and police officers and, and even the military. This is just the beginnings of it, but to help them deal with the, the kind of stressors that they face, you know, being first responders. Mm-hmm. So that's just the beginning yeah. because... <clears throat> really the the goal is that the quote average person you know want that person to be able to benefit from this material and be able to draw more meaning out of their lives and and more ability you know to to act uh, kind of decisively to move their life in the direction that they want cool I, i'm just i want to pick up a little bit on this um this idea of trauma because it's, it's kind of like there's this two schools of thoughts a little bit with how to deal with trauma and maybe not two schools of thoughts but 
it, it might seem to some people that if someone's experienced trauma that they should um, be removed of any discomfort to speak of, right? But then actually you've taken veterans who have experienced trauma and you're actually putting them in situations where they're uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Why <laughs> do you do that? <laughs> and um, what are the benefits of doing that? And, and how do you manage that safely? With, um, you can't hide from life. You know, it's like trauma happens to all of us to very in varying degrees you know and and so a lot of times the way out of it is going through it and so a climbing situation uh if we put them in into a bit of an uncomfortable or stressful situation a little bit then and then uh, help them focus on what's most helpful to focus on like they're breathing, um, and then uh, instruct the, the belayer on how to coach the climber uh, to help them be reassured that they there, they're there, they know uh, that they have them safe. Uh, then they're put in a situation where there's a little bit of stress that they need to process. They're building back the trust in their support team, which is something that's lost when veterans tend to come back. Because when, when they're in war, they're in a cohesive unit where they really are in life in this situation and would give their lives for each other. But when they come back into society, even though they have, they're in their family units, it's not the same kind of situation. And, and they can tend to miss that and withdraw within themselves so this kind of forces them out of that shell you know to be engaged and to build back the trust a little bit at a time with the the support person okay do you feel like um society is is becoming a little bit more like there's more of a desire to be like hyper safe you know like safetyism is kind of a, a problem do you feel like? I don't know that it's more than it has been. Uh, m- maybe it has. Maybe it is. I haven't noticed. But uh, I think when when we look at like climbing gyms, you know, that are sort of in a predicament, you know, between uh, creating a safe environment and in a context of people taking risk, you know, mm. uh, they they can maybe err more on creating a, a safe environment that uh, uh, is not really safe, and and then uh, or they can prevent uh, the members of the gym from. Uh, taking the kind of risks that could help them and uh, not really give them the means for, you know, facing their fears and and working through them and learning from them. Mm-hmm. 
uh, yeah. so I think it's kind of a dilemma that yeah. that they're facing, you know. Um, but uh, the, the the thing with uh, uh, if I think a helpful thing for Jim's to realize in that situation is that the members are taking risks whether they like it or not, mm-hmm. you know, and so if they want to create a safe environment, then they can actually teach the members, you know, how to understand what's an appropriate risk for them and then uh, help them learn that and then and then monitor that, you know, in their gyms. Mm. You, so you, you, you started climbing in 1970s, so um, th- there weren't gyms then. <laughs> so obviously that that's a big change. Um, what kind of other changes have you seen happening climbing that you think are interesting or or you've noted? Things that have uh, changed Just in climbing. Just changes in the climbing community, yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it used to be like uh, you have to be a nonconformist, you know, an outsider, an outlier, you know, to be a climber. You're kind of shunned, you know, the, the whole scene here in the valley was kind of mm. like that, right? Um, and and so now you, obviously it's like very accepted you know with mm-hmm. the free solo and Don Wall you know the coming out yeah. like people come up here they want to touch the base of El Cap yeah, just yeah. To, hey I watched the movie and I actually did touch the mountain yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's a, a big thing that's changed is just the acceptance of an awareness and acceptance of climbing uh, in the larger community, there's a lot of other things that have changed, like climbing gyms, you know, the sport climbing, you know, sport climbing wasn't a discipline for 10 years, you know, at, until after I started climbing, you know, so um, mixed climbing, you know, a lot of different uh, disciplines within climbing have changed, going into the Olympics. Uh, but you're talking maybe a little bit more about just... Uh, kind of the culture or you know it's whatever you th- find things interesting yeah. you don't think it's interesting <laughs> ask you a different <laughs> question <laughs> it's just uh, not to make you feel old or anything but <laughs> i don't okay. often to speak to I anyone who's, who's climbed in the um <laughs> he started climbing in the 70s you know yeah another thing that has changed it's kind of weird and that is that when we were climbing and learning how to climb and in the 70s and onward uh, there was a great mentorship going on where now there's a lot of climbers, you know, and there's not as much mentorship. Mm. And so a lot of climbers, even even though gyms, I think, in general, do a great job in having these gym to crag courses, uh, there isn't like an ongoing mentorship of people learning uh, climbing, you know, over time. Uh, mm. So back when I first started climbing, you know, older climbers would kind of take you under their wing and mm. and make sure you're you know not just doing something crazy and you're 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 learning in a way that's sustainable. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting though because in some ways it's like there's less mentorship now, but there's also probably it, climbing's also more accessible. You know, you can find 
mentorship if you look for it or if you have the money to to pay someone to teach you to climb it's kind mm-hmm. of interesting it's like there's more opportunity for people to climb but it's done in a different way it feels like people mm-hmm. yeah I don't there's know there's more instruction too yeah instruction but potentially more instruction but less mentorship i guess mm-hmm. yeah and that's maybe I don't know it, it all seems a little paradoxical you know it's like uh, there was no instruction when I first started climbing mm-hmm. like we were learning from each other mm-hmm. you know we would like read a book and one person would get a rope other one would get some pitons mm-hmm. you know and a hammer and some carabiners and 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 we would do like this mixed free and aid style, you know, just work our way up walls. And uh, and it was actually quite safe because we were afraid. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like the fear was managing how much risk we were mm. taking, you know. And so um, I think uh, the instruction that people get now is really helpful. It's really important that's really uh, been developed and to a high degree of um, quality uh, just I think it's maybe one thing that might be missing is just the, the real involvement of the student in their own learning process mm-hmm. you know one, one thing that we we do in the debriefs of the clinics is like uh, okay you do you do a the drill like falling or whatever and and then in the in the debrief we ask them to ask questions and what what did they notice uh, so that they're actively engaged in kind of uh, figuring out what they learned you know mm-hmm. and it um, I think that points back toward importance of attention because when when you're forced to do critical thinking uh, and reflect on your experience, you have to use your attention to kind of draw things together in your mind, you know, from what you had experienced, and and that's that's when you you really start uh, learning it, you know, and understanding it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and so you. Know, you you have the Rock Warriors Way, the book, but then you have the Warriors Way. No. Mm-hmm. What's the actual business called? Warriors Way. Yeah, the Warriors Way. Yeah, that's the that's your business and you have a network of trainers yep. that teach uh courses around the country mm-hmm. which are the same content at all the courses, right? Uh more or less. Yes, more or less. You know, it's, yeah, it's it's uh it's a falling in commitment material okay. that can be done in a gym in a shorter amount of time or outdoors in sport or trad for a longer period of time. Okay, yeah. And we're getting into bouldering now also. Oh, cool. And um, then you have the Espresso Lessons, which mm-hmm. is your second book, which is a bit more practical, right? Yep. It has kind of exercises and drills for people who are less interested in the philosophy, maybe, mm-hmm. or, or have read your first book and kind of just want the the practical side of it laid out clearly is that correct 
Yeah, there, there are no, I don't reference uh, any authors in Espresso Lessons. It's, uh, both books go into the material comprehensively, just in different ways, you know, and so I think they can uh, give a reader, a climber, a deeper understanding of the material. But Espresso Lessons is, yes, very practical, like very specific to how the material needs to be applied in climbing. Okay. And um, so when I describe you to people who don't know who you are, I refer to you as the godfather of mental training. Really? (laughs) (laughs) Don't do that. Is that an insult or a compliment? (laughs) Uh, In climbing. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Um, But you were kind of the first person. I don't know. For for me, myself... uh, I was always interested in the psychology of climbing, but it wasn't until I read your book that I was like, oh, hang on a minute, you can train this. Like, mm-hmm. it's not this thing that's just given to you, right? It's not like, you know, people said, oh, you know, you're a brave climber, you're bold. And I was like, I don't, I don't think I am, but I can guess I can manage s- s- some of my fears sometimes for the same reason that you said you could, you know, just you put mm-hmm. yourself in those situations enough time that you, you, you learn in those situations, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but it wasn't until I read your book where I was like, oh, wait a minute, I can, the, we, we can train this. Like, I, I mm-hmm. can get better at this. Um, and I think you were the first person in climbing that I heard talk in that way. And that was quite a few years ago now. But I don't see many other people joining that conversation i don't i don't know of many other businesses that are popping up um dealing with this why why do you think that is i i think there are a lot of instructors around the world that are doing mental training actually to varying degrees mm-hmm. um But this is definitely, you know, how many people... You can walk into a climbing gym now and you can ask the front desk and say, hey, I'm looking for someone to, like, as a physical trainer, I'm looking for a coach Mm -hmm. to help me climb, be stronger or fitter, right? But if you walk into a gym and you're like, I I want a sports psychologist or I want someone who's going to help me with my head, Mm -hmm. uh, you know... the answer to the first question might have 10 different options. The answer to the second question may have one, two, max, right? Mm. Why is that? (laughs) Why do we often kind of underestimate that that side of climbing, you know, the psychology? Uh, Well, I don't know exactly, but uh, it could possibly be because... um, Physical training is much more tangible. Mental training is more subtle. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> you can measure someone progressing from 20 to 21 pull-ups, for instance. You can't measure very well, at least not yet, you know, about uh, one's ability to... how intense their attention could be, mm-hmm. you know, or... Uh, how long they could sustain attention on something. Oh, we got someone. Who is it? Uh, the police. Police? 
straight to open. So, this is police. You know you're in the valley when you yeah. get your, your door knocked on <laughs> when at you get, 8, 8 p.m. just because you're, you're parked in there. Yeah, when your van gets knocked on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Make sure you're not camping here, Hazel, yeah, okay? Yeah, I, I will. I'm, I'm definitely not going to, don't worry. <laughs> um, uh, you're, yeah, you know, the physical training, you know, it's more quantifiable. It's easier to wrap your head around. Mental training is more elusive, intangible, but... Uh, I think I think that actually could change with technology, you know, where they're, they're getting to be more and more instruments out there that can actually measure attention. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really intrigued about at some point doing a study, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. of being able to measure like performance improvement, you know, using some of this technology on that can see like performance improvement tied to the ability to keep attention in a moment but but it is more subtle like how how do you measure someone uh, being able to sustain their attention um, but the, the thing that uh, I would like the the listeners to think about and that is that if you don't think that something is possible all the physical training is not going to help very much Mm -hmm. You know, so uh, even though mental training can be very subtle and seemingly intangible, there, what we're doing are some real practical ways of practicing it, right? Like you mm -hmm. can actually uh, improve in how you use your attention. So uh, really encourage people and climbers to investigate their mental training so they can get better at it so that whatever physical training they do can be maximized mm -hmm. yeah yeah you, you see so much right you like people focusing on just getting their fingers as strong as they possibly can and then over gripping mm -hmm. so you've just you've just wasted all of your finger strength because you're not climbing efficiently. Right. You um, <laughs> see it so often, right? Um, so, you know, what, what's one thing, one kind of takeaway to someone who might refuse to read your books? <laughs> 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 one takeaway from this podcast. Uh, one takeaway would be that eventually you're going to hit a plateau and you're going to want to read the book or take a clinic and reach out. And I think everyone has to come to that point, you know, in their own journey. And, um, and so it just uh, would like it not to be the result of an accident, you know, or taking an inappropriate risk because you refuse to learn and face falling and learn it as a skill. But um, just encourage you to reach out and to start your process you know for for mental training okay and you think that first maybe first as a climber for some people and then is your hope that anyone who starts that journey as a climber expands that to the kind of the rest of their lives yes i mean um one thing i did not want uh, warrior's way to be is like uh, a bag of tricks, you know, put on your your mental training cap, go climbing and take it off when you mm -hmm. get off the rock. 
in order for any training to be effective, it has to become second nature and just part of your uh, mind-body uh, system. So what the, the real benefit of what we teach, you know, in climbing uh, can make people aware of how they're effective they're in climbing and then they can very easily bridge it to their lives, you know. So that's may, maybe that's the, the main takeaway, you mm -hmm. know, is that uh, mental training that we're doing can help people understand their experience in climbing better so that they can actually live more fulfilling lives. Like they can realize maybe if they're not working in something that's passionate and that they're passionate about and maybe make some choices, you know, around moving that in a different direction. Cool. <laughs> Seems like a good spot to end. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks. Yeah, for... thanks so much. That was great. I mean, I, I could just keep talking to you for uh, for hours more. And I, I bet when I re-listen to this, I'll be like, why didn't I ask him about that? Um, <laughs> but no, that was great. Maybe we'll have to do it again sometime. Well, we won't have to, but we can choose to. Mm, yeah. <laughs> we'll listen to the poll, the cosmic poll, and we'll, we'll follow ourselves on there. Cool. All right. Thanks a lot, Arno. Thank you.